Hello and welcome to episode 103. This is the second and final part of this series on the life of Miyamoto Musashi. I'd like to remind you that the main thing that's keeping History on Fire in business at the moment are listeners like you supporting the show through Patreon or Substack. On Patreon, there are multiple options you can support at various levels. The entry level is $5 a month, which is less than you would give to a waiter you don't like if you just go one time out for dinner in a month. So it's not a... I mean, I still appreciate it a lot. You know, it's like anything that you decide to part with your hard-earned money to just share them with me, that's insanely appreciated. But hopefully it's not a prohibitive cost, and with $5 a month you get uh, bonus episodes that I release exclusively for supporters on Patreon and Substack. Patreon, as I was mentioning, allows uh, multiple levels to donate, and at the highest level I want to give a shout out to Mark Chang, Chimi Moxam, Charles Accorso, and Justin Bourne. If you would like to join this brave band of heroes, you can check out patreon.com forward slash history on fire. You can check out, there's actually, I recently created a link tree where there are all the links for Patreon, Substack, a new YouTube channel I recently started. So you may want to subscribe for free just to get some mini history on fire documentaries I released there. That is linktree forward slash Daniele Bolelli. Linktree is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash my name, which is Daniele Bolelli. D-A-N-I-E-L-E-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Having said that, three quick shout outs before we get going. First one, and I'll do this as quick as possible because I know some of you guys just want to get to the episodes. So just to get to business, in late April 2024, I'll be heading to Japan as part of a tour organized by Geek Nation Tours. There are not many, but there are, I think, two or three spots left available if anybody's interested. If you Google Geek Nation Tours and Classic Samurai, you'll find the link easily. And that breaks down the whole what the whole tour entails. Again, that Geek Nation Tours, Classic Samurai. Shoutout number two. I'd like to give a shoutout to the podcast Echoes of History. They essentially start from the Assassin's Creed series, and they spin like providing a historical background to some of these tales. In particular, the current season is based on the Assassin's Creed game that has just been released, the Mirage and uh, it dives into the the setting of 9th century Baghdad and all of the history surrounding that. I'm a huge fan of the Assassin's Creed series, so I'm fascinated with this story. Third and last shout-out to DakotaPureBison.com. If you guys are in the business of looking for any bison-related products, anything from burgers to steak to all sorts of other things, check out the many different offerings at dakotapurebison.com. I can use the code HOF10 for a 10% discount at your order. Again, that's dakotapurebison.com, HOF10. Having said all this... I will now jump straight into the episode without any further blubbing along. Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. 
Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, a writer, and a martial artist. He shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Goza History on Fire. Welcome to part two of this series on Miyamoto Musashi, possibly the most famous samurai in all of history. In this episode, we're going to see a lot less duels than we saw in part one, but I think that this one will actually deliver more substance. Less flash, perhaps, but more substance. When we left off, we saw Musashi having a rather rough childhood, becoming a wandering swordsman and wrecking havoc in duels across Japan. Last we heard from him, he had defeated a warrior named Sasaki Kojiro in what was possibly the most famous duel of Musashi's life. Now, chronicles are relatively silent about what happened in the following couple of years. Next thing that we hear of him, he was tied up in events that were extremely important, far beyond the specific of his own life, but rather paramount in Japanese history as a whole. What I'm talking about is the very last campaign that would conclude the Warring States period, that had begun about a century and a half earlier, in 1467, with the beginning of the Onin War. What I'm referring to is the siege of Osaka that took place between 1614 and 1615, when Musashi was entering his early thirties. Now, in the first episode of this series, I discussed the Sekigahara battle of the year 1600, which more or less decided the outcome of the civil wars and allowed Tokugawa Ieyasu to consolidate his dominion on Japan. And I also addressed the role that a very young Musashi may have played in these larger events. Now, the Battle of Sekigahara, as mentioned last time, was between the forces loyal to Toyotomi Deyori, who was the seven-year-old son of the previous main boss of Japanese politics, his father, Toyotomi Deyoshi. So on one side you have the Toyotomi side, And on the other, you had the ones following Tokugawa Ieyasu, who he had decided that Japan would be much better off under his rule, surprise, surprise, rather than under a bunch of regents acting for a seven-year-old. Somehow, miraculously, well, not so miraculously, I mean, mainly he did it by bribing generals on the other side to switch sides mid-battles, but Tokugawa had won the day. And as a result, after Sekigahara, he was able to claim the title of Shogun in 1603, redistribute the spoils, and essentially take control over the whole country. However, it almost goes without saying that he couldn't just eliminate all of his enemies all at once. You know, to start with, you just can't wipe out the many warriors and all those clans all in one big shot. 
he also had been unable to eliminate Hideyori himself, as no doubt he would have liked. But the problem was, many lords who had joined Tokugawa's side had done so because they didn't like the regents, but still felt a minimum sense of loyalty to the memory of Hideyori's father. So they had been willing to fight on the Tokugawa side, they had even accepted that the Tokugawa had essentially disinherited Hideyori from his claim to the throne, but they probably would not have appreciated the murder of uh, Hideyori, you know, first the murder of a child, period, but then, you know, Hideyori specifically, that would have been a bad deal. So reluctantly, Tokugawa Ieyasu had allowed Hideyori to keep control of Osaka, and had even accepted a marriage between Hideyori and his own granddaughter. By 1614, however, Ieyasu noticed that Hideyori was brighter than advertised, which of course was not a good thing, since it meant he may turn out to be a good leader, and thereby a threat. Hideyori had also started rebuilding the castle in Osaka, which could be interpreted as a sign of hostility. So Ieyasu was just, at this point was just looking for some pretext, and he found a really flimsy one about an inscription on a temple bell created on Hideyori's order. He decided to interpret this writing as an insult to him and a declaration of rebellion. Now, that's not at all what the inscription said. I mean, if you read the text, is there's nothing to suggest that, but he just bent over backwards to find a way to justify it. And essentially, he was just looking for a chance to get rid of the last remaining obstacle to his full control over Japan. Now, there were plenty of samurai whose lords had been killed in 1600 at Sekigahara, who had a bone to pick with Tokugawa. They were running, animated by vengeance. They had no employment and much desire for revenge. Same thing goes for those lords who had lost out in the course of the land redistribution that Tokugawa Ieyasu had done to reward his followers. So quite a few people join Hideyori in the castle in Osaka. By late 1614, over 90,000 warriors were inside Osaka castle, and they all had one thing in common. They hated the Tokugawa. Obviously, this was something that Ieyasu was not ready to let slide. In some way, they did him a favor. You know, all of his enemies were gathered in one place. So, Ieyasu figured he might as well get the old army back for one final swoop. Now, I should mention that by now, even though I keep talking about Tokugawa Ieyasu as the boss of Japanese politics at this time, Ieyasu had, been, had made a smart move a few years prior to this, to avoid what had happened to, uh, to Hideyoshi and Hideyori, you know, between father and son. Ieyasu had established a pattern to give up power while he was still alive, so that his son would start taking over and gather loyalty while he himself was still alive, in order to avoid messy dynastic secessions issue. So, theoretically speaking, power was uh, in the hands of his son, uh, his still last name, of course, Tokugawa, uh, Idetada was the name. 
However, for all intents and purposes, everybody knew that the power behind the throne was still his father, Ieyasu. Uh, father and son didn't always agree. Actually, they disagree a lot. And even during this uh, military campaign that they would launch against Osaka, they had more than one moment of disagreement. Kenji Tokitsu, the author of a biography of Musashi, wrote, We have no documentary evidence on Musashi for the two years following his, duels, his duel with Kojiro. We only know that he participated in the Battle of Osaka. Now, there's a bit of debate, because again, Musashi is not as famous as he was. He was not this super powerful figure, so chronicles of the time were not exactly detailing his every move. Some people, some scholars, even to this day, believe that Musashi fought in Osaka on the Toyotomi side, on the people inside of Osaka, against the Tokugawa power. Most of these scholars are also the ones who believe that he had fought on the losing side of the Battle of Sekigahara. First, as I mentioned during the first episode of this series, plenty of people argued that it's not the case, that he actually fought on the Tokugawa side. But even more so, even some people who believe that Musashi may have fought against the Tokugawa Sekigahara believe that he fought with the Tokugawa by now. For one, because he was pretty clear who was going to win this war. It was almost a given that Tokugawa would prevail. It would have taken a miracle for him to lose this war. And so somebody like Musashi was a brilliant strategist and always stacking the deck in his favor. Why would he have taken, why would he have joined what almost certainly was the losing side? We should also keep in mind that by now Musashi had built a strong relationship with Lord Ozokawa and Dozokawa was loyal to the Tokugawa. So that's another element to suggest that he probably was on the Tokugawa side. And another element to suggest that he was on the Tokugawa side is that a few years later, Musashi would be hired by the Ogasawara clan. And considering that the lord of the Ogasawara clan at this time had lost his father, his eldest brother, and plenty of men during the battle of, um, during the siege of Osaka, fighting on the Tokugawa side, the odds that this guy, just a few years later, would hire somebody who had fought on the other side doesn't seem like the most likely possible scenario. You know, it seems like a rather weird thing to do. And instead, he paid Musashi handsomely to uh, help design the temple gardens, to help design a castle for him, because that's, among other talents, that's something that Musashi did. So again, some people point to this to say he almost certainly fought on the Tokugawa side. So this campaign began in late 1614, in what was referred to as the Winter Campaign, when Tokugawa forces started closing in on Osaka. And when I mean Tokugawa forces, I mean a lot of people. Some estimate argue was over 160,000 soldiers, which is clearly a big army for the 1600s. I won't take you to every little battle that took place, but basically the Tokugawa win several engagements leading up to Osaka, because clearly not everybody was just inside the castle. They also took positions in some of the villages around it. 
and by the time he reached Osaka itself, Tokugawa forces were, they were not exactly above using artillery. Plenty of it borrowed by Europeans were, many of them in order to keep trading, uh, particularly the Dutch, in order to keep trading with the Tokugawa, they decided to land cannons left and right, uh, which uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu more than happily used in the siege of Osaka. While the cannons were booming and shooting shells inside Osaka castle, Tokugawa also had some men digging under the exterior walls. These were essentially miners uh, digging tunnels under the walls in order to either provide an entry or try to lead to the collapse of the external walls. Because the reality is that the cannons were more for show than they were, you know, they, they were not in the ratio of strength between walls of the castle and structure of the castle versus what the cannons could do. Uh, the cannons could scare people, could kill people with the occasional shell flying over the walls, but they were not able to destroy the walls. So the reality is that Ieyasu kept using them more for psychological effects than because they were going to bring the siege to an finish. Annoyed that it was taking too long to win this war, Ieyasu went back to his old tactics, which was if you throw enough money at enemy soldiers, maybe somebody important will defect and give you an advantage. He tried with an enemy commander, didn't work. He tried with another one, it may have worked, but he was discovered and the defending forces chopped his head off. So, annoyed with the fact that even this tactic wasn't working, Ieyasu started targeting the living quarters of Hideyori's mother. Uh, something that apparently freaked her out quite a bit, especially when a shell killed a couple of her maids. On one particular day, which was the anniversary of Hideyori's father's death, uh, Hideyoshi, Ieyasu put two and two together and he figured that Hideyori and the family would probably be in the temple dedicated to his father, so he told the soldiers to shoot in that direction. And the gamble almost paid off, because uh, they say that one of the cannonballs almost took out the Yoris head, but instead uh, he hit uh, very close to him. So while all this was going on, peace negotiations began between the two sides, and Ieyasu, or rather the Tokugawa side, because again officially power was in the hands of his son, but the Tokugawa side seemed to offer really generous terms. He said, hey, this is all one big misunderstanding, we would let you leave, you can keep Osaka as, as uh, your personal fiefdom. Uh, if you want to leave Osaka instead, we'll give you another land base that's just as good or better, and all your soldiers are going to be pardoned, so they have nothing to worry about. Of course, however, he would need hostages as a sign that Hideyori would keep his end of the bargain. So, a discussion takes place among Hideyori's advisors, and they are trying to figure out what to do. And one of the conditions that they are told that the Tokugawa requires is that they are to fill the outer pit of uh, the moat surrounding the castle. 
and and again they have to also provide hostages so Ieyasu sent the document, this peace deal, sealing it with his own blood from his finger. And the essential themes are all the samurai are found not guilty and pardoned. Hideyori's income would remain the same as before. Um, he can, uh, if Hideyori chooses to leave Osaka, he can and pick a different one and that nothing bad will be done to him. So Hideyori agrees. He says, fine, I'm not going to rebel against you. And uh, yes, I'll sign this peace deal. He's not thrilled when uh, Ieyasu's soldiers begin to fill up the moat, both the exterior defenses and the interior ones, saying, hey, that there's some disagreement on whether all this whole uh, filling of the moat part was uh, in the deal that they had discussed or not. But Ieyasu say, oh, come on, what's the problem? You know, we, we've signed a peace deal, so you're not going to need walls or moats or anything like that because we're at peace now. Now, the reality is that they were speaking politely in official meetings and they were signing these blood oaths. And the reality is that neither one trusted the other and they were both planning to have the other one murdered. So... Ideori keep hearing this report that Ieyasu is secretly planning to attack him, so he starts breaking the deal by actually digging the moats again and attracting more soldiers inside the fortress. Of course, Ieyasu uses this as an excuse to say, you see, this guy is not sticking to his terms, so why should I? And it becomes clear that round two of war is coming. You know, they took a, they had the winter campaign, they took a break for a few months, but my, by May of the following year, war is back on the menu. Without getting lost in all the details of the various military engagements, if we cut to the chase, the point is the Tokugawa won the, this campaign. They completed the siege of Osaka and uh, destroyed the defenses. As all of this was going down, now you got to remember in the meantime that Hideyori's wife was uh, Ieyasu's granddaughter. So it's a bit of a messy situation here. So Ieyasu does send some people inside to try to get her out before death and destruction start spreading everywhere. They are successful at that. Not so successful on the other end for Hideyori himself and his mother, who, you know, while... There's debate on whether Ieyasu would have ever pardoned them or not. They remove any question from this because they kill themselves. They commit seppuku in a ritual suicide while Osaka Castle is in flames. And essentially, the Toyotomi line ends here. So the main challengers that could stand in the way of Tokugawa power, despite the fact that their odds weren't great to begin with, they are now gone. So this was the last major rebellion against Tokugawa rule. And from this point forward is well over 200 years of Tokugawa power that will go with very little blips on the radar in terms of rebellion or anything. Nothing from this point forward is as serious as this last major attempt. That's why the, the Osaka campaign is considered the very end of the Warring State period. It's worth mentioning that Hideyori's son was only eight years old and this time was captured 
and he had his head chopped off when he was brought back as a prisoner in Kyoto. The story goes that before he had his head chopped off, the little kid just stood up to Ieyasu and just flat out condemned him for what he considered a betrayal of the peace treaty. Regardless of whether this exact detail took place or not, historians kind of disagree on that part. They don't disagree on his execution, they just disagree on whether he stood up and yelled at Ieyasu or not. The point is that when, in an effort to consolidate power, you feel the need to chop the head off of an 8-year-old, I think it's safe to say that you're not the nicest human being who ever lived. You know, halfway decent people ending up as rulers throughout history. This is not just about Japan. Like, throughout history, you don't see too many halfway decent people ending up ruling empires or kingdoms. That, that tends to be the exception more than the rule. The game itself that they are playing forces them to often be ruthless and cold. Now, maybe it doesn't force them. Maybe there could be other, more humane ways to rule, but it definitely, the game they play encourages taking the more brutal, cold-hearted approach, just because it's easier. And that's why rulers throughout history tend to be mostly awful people. You know, maybe you read stories of European rulers being incestuous, murderous bastards, and got you thinking that that's a European thing. And maybe before you actually studied world history, you thought that in other places, rulers could be more decent. Well, that's not the case, really. Here you have Tokugawa Ieyasu solidifying his rule by beheading an eight-year-old. Um, he had done terrible things even before that. And this was Tokugawa Ieyasu, one of the greatest unifiers of Japan as a nation and the other two before him were just as bad, if not worse. Uh, Ideyori's daughter was spared. She, was just, she just became a nun uh, into a temple. Hideyoshi's grave was destroyed. Essentially, the whole Toyotomi clan was destroyed. The remainder of the family, you know, the execution of the eight-year-old, was done to erase their family line. And this was the exclamation point that put an end to the Sengoku period, or the Warring States period. Now, despite finally uniting Japan, Ieyasu was not long for this world. His health was failing. Um, during the campaign against uh, Osaka, he, he had been wounded in a way that clearly contributed to his demise. So just one year later, in uh, June 1616, Tokugawa Ieyasu was the third and last of these three unifiers I mentioned, died at the age of 75, and his role into the story comes to an end. It's almost fitting that he dies right at the end of the Sengoku period, and he only gets one year to live afterwards. I should mention... One funny thing. Again, funny. Every time I use the word funny in History on Fire, I always feel guilty because then right after I say it, I think about what I'm about to say and I'm like, okay, that's funny for people who have a bit of a dark sense of humor, I guess. But one quote-unquote funny thing that I wanted to bring up was something that Ieyasu had done during the siege of Osaka that 
At some point, they, when one of the enemy commanders had been killed, his soldiers had uh, chopped off his head, and by his I mean not the commander's soldier, Tokugawa soldiers had chopped off his head and they brought it to Ieyasu. And Ieyasu noticed that he had uh, the man had burned incense in his helmet. Why would he do that? You know, why would a commander going into battle burn a lot of incense in the helmet? Because well, the guy was thinking, in case I get killed and they chop off my head, when they present my head and they remove my helmet, my head will still smell good. You know, you want to take my head as a trophy? Well, least I can do is to make sure it smells good. Because, you know, I wouldn't want to inconvenience you with the poor smell of my decaying head or something. And Yeyasu publicly praised this, saying, uh, yeah, this is what a good soldier should do. You know, what a thoughtful guy. He burns some incense in the helmet, so when I, I cut off his head, uh, he wouldn't stink. Very nice of him. There are a few stories regarding Musashi's participation at the Siege of Osaka, but honestly, other than most sources agreeing that he participated, the specifics are rather hazy, so it's very likely that he participated, it's very likely that he participated on the Tokugawa side, but other than that, there's not a whole lot that is for sure. And to be perfectly honest, the records of his life between the age of 31 and 50 are spotty at best, you know, there are anecdotes here and there, and I'm gonna tell you whatever I do know, of this period, but it's a period where we definitely know less than before and after. What most sources seem to hint at is that in the following years, around roughly 1618-1619, somewhere around there, Musashi may have adopted a child. Now, we don't know why, really. It could have been because he never, Musashi never started a family, so he figured for the sake of not making my line die with me, I'll adopt a child. It could have been, you know, we can speculate, but the reality is we don't know. And we don't even know, uh, I mean, we do know that this guy would later take the name of Miyamoto Mikinosuke. We do know that um, he existed, we do know some of what happens to him. There is also disagreement regarding exactly who he was. In some version, he's the son of a samurai who had died during the Osaka campaign. In other version, he's somebody that he just uh, Musashi runs into in the countryside and eventually negotiate with his parents to be able to adopt him, saying that he could give him certain opportunities that the young guy would not have otherwise. So who knows exactly? What we do know is that he places him at the service of uh, a powerful lord, uh, Lord Honda Tadamasa, and specifically Tadamasa's son, uh, Tadatoki. So, so far so good, Musashi seemed to be living to the, his end of this bargain and getting uh, the young man great opportunities. Uh, Mikonosuke is also living to his end of the bargain. The old reports say that he becomes a very skilled swordman, an excellent scholar, so he's, um, he's you know, the Honda family is pleased of, uh, with having him in their service. Problem is that 
the Honda's family line bearer, uh, Tadatoki, died of tuberculosis at only 30 years old in 1626. So at this time, Musashi's adopted son visited Musashi for one last time and then returned to the Honda castle and committed ritual suicide to follow his lord in death, which in some way kind of reminds you of human sacrifice in many ancient cultures. When the ruler died, some of the people closest to him would also commit human sacrifice to follow him in death. This is basically the same thing. Um, so that's something that would make Musashi grieve deeply. He expected it. He expected that this was going to happen. You know, once uh, Tadatoki died, it was almost inevitable that um, that Mikinosuke would follow. But nonetheless, it's a heavy blow. This kind of ritual suicide was pretty much expected from the closest servants of a lord would later be prohibited, in, uh, specifically in 1663, by the Tokugawa government, so several decades after these events, uh, because it had been really popular, but the Tokugawa at some point decided, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have all these uh, valuable people all killing themselves every time a lord dies. So they tried to cut it out and end this custom. Mikinosuke, however, was not the only one who Musashi adopted. Just a couple of years before Mikinosuke's death, Musashi had adopted a young boy named Yori. The tale goes something like this. It says that as uh, during his travels, Musashi ran into this young boy. They had kind of a chance encounter and he was struck by the manners of the boy and later found out that uh, his father had just died. His mother had died already, so the boy was fairly young and was about to be completely an orphan. And so Musashi helped him out, bury his father, and in the process of spending a little time with him, he, he got to like him. He felt that he had a good character, a good attitude, so he offered to adopt him, and he taught him well enough that not many years later, he was able to pitch him as um, as somebody to be hired by the Ogazawara family. And as it turns out, Yori did a phenomenal career. You know, he started out as a low-level administration for the Ogazawara family, and he quickly climbed up the ranks until he was one of their trusted right-hand men. So definitely you can say that his uh, Yori's encounter with Musashi really turned his life around in a big way. We also hear about a few confrontations that Musashi had uh, around this time in the early 1620s when Musashi is entering his late 30s. One was a fight that he had with a samurai named uh, Miyake Gunbei and what's striking about his fight with Gonbei was that um, Musashi was surprisingly restrained. Surprisingly, at least, considering what his record was up until now, where more often than not, he either killed the opponent or maimed them badly. In this case, he didn't at all. He limited himself to making it very clear that Gonbei had lost, 
making it clear that he could have chopped his head off, but other than wounding him lightly, letting him go essentially with a warning, letting him know, hey, you know, if we did this for real, you would be dead right now, but I'm just not in that phase of my life where I feel like killing people anymore. There was uh, Musashi's vibe around this time, and this happens more than once. Actually, Dibs becomes sort of typical of most of the encounters that uh, Musashi has around this time, you know, what used to be bloody duels, and now they tend to be, from this point forward, they tend to be usually much more mellow affairs. Could be age, could be that uh, he had been studying Buddhism quite a bit, and that may have had an impact on him. Could have been, uh, you know, a lot of different factors, but what we do know for sure is that he was clearly mellowing out. Um, in one occasion, when he went to visit his uh, adopted son, Yori, at the Ogaza uh, Ogazawara family, one of the Ogazawara main fencing teachers was paired up with, they asked if Musashi would be willing to have a friendly duel with him, and Musashi did, and essentially played complete defense, like the other... The other guy was actually armed with a spear instead, because this guy was both a um, spear instructor as well as a sword one. He was armed with a spear, and Musashi just limited himself to deflecting all his attacks, to the point that after a while, his opponent just gave up. Almost like a Roberto Duran kind of no-mass type of thing, when he just gives up, not because he's getting knocked out, or in this case, not because he's getting stabbed or anything, just because he's feeling outclassed. Uh, the story goes that his opponent said, look, I have a longer weapon, I have a spear, and I'm still not able to win within a decent amount of time. I might as well admit losing, because if Musashi were to turn it on, it would be bad for me. So the guy just gives up. And, and this happened more than once in this period. This continues to happen through this phase of his life. Clearly quite a few people who had found themselves on the wrong end of Musashi's sword earlier in life probably wished that Musashi had, uh, had this attitude way back when, but it's not their choice to make, I guess, and uh, in Musashi's case, better late than never for this change to come. And in some way this change is representative of his life, but also of uh, larger trends in society at large. There's um, Kenji Tokitsu writes that Toward the end of his life, Musashi fought his duels by dominating his adversaries without striking a blow. This way of defeating an adversary would in the future become the ultimate goal of the Japanese martial arts in the form they acquired during the Edo period. In the course of the preceding centuries, fighting had generally meant taking someone's life whereas starting in the 17th century, succeeding in dominating one's opponent without killing him became the objective that little by little came to pervade the martial arts. And in some cases, he didn't even fight at all. There's uh, his encounter with a member of the Yagyu family, and these guys were the teachers to the shogun, not the teachers to an old shogun like earlier. These were the top-notch sword-fighting instructors in the country. Back in the old days, probably when Musashi still felt that he had something to prove, 
an encounter with one of them would have led to them drawing blades. Instead, in this case, he says that his other guy liked him, invited him to drink sake with him, and they just spent an afternoon chit-chatting and having a great time drinking and enjoying themselves. And that was that. That was the whole encounter between two people who were among probably the best swordsmen in Japan at this time. Swordmanship didn't even come up. It was just not a thing. And this is clearly not something that would have happened earlier in Musashi's life. It's, uh, it's becoming obvious that the man was changing rather radically. The softer side to Musashi's personality also shows up in another way. Keep in mind that this is something that's only found in one source about Musashi's life. Now, there may be reasons for this, because some of the other sources were ashamed to admit this tale and didn't want, they felt that maybe you would put Musashi in a less noble light. Or maybe it's, uh, or maybe it's because it's not true, who knows? It's, of course, it's impossible to tell from us today, but one of the sources tell us that Musashi ended up having an affair with a courtesan from Edo. She was from the renowned Yoshiwara district, which was kind of the red light district in Edo at the time. And he started a regular relationship with one of the geishas there. The tale goes on to say that they had a kid together, a daughter. And the daughter... You know, they don't tell us much about it, other than she died at three years old. And then Musashi was absolutely emotionally wrecked by the whole thing. Um, the story goes that he was in deep grief, openly crying all day. When people tried to console him, he just didn't pay attention and was just a mess. To the point that some of his disciples, because he always was attracting disciples for his swordmanship, were beginning to think, oh, this is not, you know, this is not how you conduct yourself. You're supposed to be stoic and tough. And, you know, they they felt like, <laughs> and again, don't get me started on what I think about it, but they felt that being so emotional over a child not only a child, but a girl child. So it's not even a boy that's going to be the heir to your family name and to your system. They felt like, come on, you're supposed to be this stoic, tough samurai. You're not supposed to show that much emotion. The culture at large tended to frown on showing so much emotion. So they felt like this was a sign of weakness in a way. And one of the theories is that other biographies of Musashi don't talk about it because they were so invested in making Musashi look as good as possible that telling a story about him having a kid with a geisha and then crying like crazy, showing excessive attachment upon the death of the child, that didn't put him in the best spotlight. Of course, I couldn't disagree more. Because if anything, this uh, humanizes Musashi and make him look more like somebody that's actually who's actually relatable. You know, in many ways, it's that's his best part right there. The fact that he cared so much over his daughter, regardless of what anyone thought. And speaking of the people who criticize Musashi over caring for a child so much, 
author William Delange, who wrote a great biography of Musashi, writes, These people fail to perceive the real tragedy at the core of Musashi's life. A tragedy this episode had brought home to him with devastating clarity. Musashi was a warrior who had spent his life in the pursuit of an art, the ultimate aim of which was to kill one's opponent. Death and destruction, not the giving of life, were at the core of his trade. The birth of a little girl, a girl destined one day to give birth to her own children, was a symbol of renewal and regeneration, and as such stood for everything that Musashi was not. He later goes on to write, To Musashi she had presented a bridge, however fragile, between a world of warfare and another, more peaceful world. The tragic death of the infant, her life snuffed out long before her promise was realized, must have brought home to Musashi once and for all that he was destined not to partake of the better world. The child's death, then, was far more than just the loss of a loved one. It was the dreadful and undeniable proof of the incompatibility between a way of life that was unique but solitary and one that was commonplace but happy, a life blessed with children. I love this passage by the Lange. That's why I went into an extended one, you know, more than a few couple of sentences, because it really captures what to me is the... It really is that the Lange says it best when he said the tragedy, you know, the tragedy at the core of Musashi's life. That's exactly what I see in this. And I'm going to save my thoughts for the end in this regard. But this seems to be the crux of the issue with Musashi. That on one hand, he was this god of the martial arts. And on the other hand, there was something extremely human at which... I don't want to say he failed because it makes it sound like it's his fault. But like something extremely human that he wasn't able to, to taste, to go for, to develop... In any case, I'll keep some of these thoughts for later. Right now I want to jump to a major historical event that we know Musashi participated in, and that's the 1638 Shimabara Rebellion. Ever since the siege of Osaka, and this would continue on for the following couple of centuries, this is a period of relative peace. Peace enforced by the Iron Feast of the Tokugawa, but peace nonetheless. An exception to this took place in late 1637 and 1638, and that's the Shimabara Rebellion that I'm about to tell you about. What happened in the Shimabara domain, Shimabara refers to the location where the rebellion took place, what happened in this area was that the ruling family was... uh, particularly unpopular. They kept raising taxes on a population of farmers that was already at the edge of starvation. They wanted to build a new castle, and they also were very aggressive in squashing Christianity. These were two strikes that the local population did not appreciate. For one, because keep raising taxes on people that were already starving, well, you can see the problem with that. Plus, It's not just that he was taking their food 
not that that's a small thing when you are on the brink of starvation, but on top of it, if he didn't like a peasant's attitude for daring to say things like, I'm starving, I'm sorry, but I have nothing left to give in taxes, he would tie them up in straw and set them on fire, which didn't endear him to his subjects. And this family, uh, known as the Matsukura family, they had been at odds with the Tokugawa in the past, so they were under heavy, heavy scrutiny. They were supposed to produce results, and so this may have pushed them over the edge, or maybe they were just sadistic, horrible people to begin with. Hard to tell. In either case, their attitude generated a backlash. A group of uh, ronin, you know, masterless samurai, joined with uh, peasants who were primarily Catholic. So they were mad because they were overtaxed, and they were mad because their lord was squashing Christianity. So these forces combined to rebel against uh, the Matsukara family. And in the process of rebelling against the Matsukara family, of course, they were also rebelling against the Tokugawa authority that had put the Matsukara in power. As I mentioned, a large percentage of the rebels were Christians. And uh, the rebellion began in uh, late 1637, in December, with the assassination of a local uh, magistrate. And one of the key figures in the rebellion, I'm not going to go into the biography of everybody involved because this would take us on a big, huge tangent, but there was this one guy nicknamed the Child of Heaven who was a teenager who emerged as one of the leaders of the rebellion. I mentioned that the crackdown on Christianity had a lot to do with it. In some way, the story of Christianity in Japan at this time is so interesting and probably deserves its own episode. But for now, let's just say the missionaries had made inroads and spread Christianity quite a bit in the late 1500s. The problem was that Japan saw what had happened in other Asian countries. They saw that more often than not, Europeans would show up as traders and missionaries. So nothing scary, not even an invading force, just trade and missionaries. And in each case, when trade and missionaries, had, traders and missionaries had showed up initially, before too long, those countries fell under European influence and ended up being colonized. The Japanese saw that happening in one place, another, and another, and figure, we really don't want this to happen. And they looked inside and they saw that they already had plenty of European traders and missionaries. So they started passing restrictive measures to limit this. Uh, in 1614, right before the Osaka campaign, the Tokugawa had passed the law cracking down on Christianity. Now, enforcement wasn't all that initially, but over time it progressively got stricter. In any case, back to our rebellion. The governor of Nagasaki tried to nip the rebellion in the bud by sending 4,000 troops after the rebels, but quickly found out that the rebels were much tougher than expected and they beat his troops. So the governor was now forced to ask for help from the national government. 
The rebels laid siege to several castles in the area. They weren't able to take down these castles, but they were able to steal lots of weapons and food from the storehouses. They eventually moved to an abandoned castle called the Hara Castle, and they started rebuilding it as best that they could, using uh, wood from uh, boats, using, you know, basically whatever they could find. By now, their numbers, this was not no small-scale little rebellion. It's said that they were close to 40,000 people, um, not just warriors, clearly, also women and kids and everything in between, but, you know, they were still a large number of people. Making it clear that Christianity was a big part of this story, there were crosses everywhere around the castle. They were on the rebel flags, they also used images of the Virgin Mary. Again, Catholicism was not a secondary aspect in this story, it was a pretty big deal. But joining them, in addition to poor peasants and uh, Catholic that sometimes were peasants, sometimes were not. There were also some samurai who had never liked the Tokugawa, who had fought against them at Sekigahara, who may have been pardoned and joined the Tokugawa for some of their campaigns, like, uh, like the Osaka Castle campaign, or in some cases they didn't and managed to escape, but either way, they had remained loyal to some of the Tokugawa's rivals, so they also joined with the peasants and the Catholics for this showdown against the Tokugawa regime. And again, we're talking about 40,000 people. This is a big rebellion, one of the biggest that the Tokugawas will ever have to face. So the regime decided not to leave anything to chance, and they raised over 100,000 men for this campaign. Since the Ogazawara family, who had hired his adoptive son and who had also been supportive of Musashi, was going to send all of their men in, uh, in the Tokugawa army to crush this rebellion, Musashi was invited to go as well. So the story goes that she, he went to Yoshiwara to say goodbye to his courtesan lover, since he expected that, I mean, maybe he didn't expect to be killed, but there was a very decent chance that he could be killed in, uh, in battle. So he went off, and depending on who you listen to, his primary job during the campaign was either to sort of act as a bodyguard for one of the Ogazawara youngest, um, some of the youngest members of the family who didn't have experience in battle. Some said that he was playing a strategic role. Either way, he was very much part of the Tokugawa forces going after the rebels. By the end of March 1638, the Tokugawa had in the field almost 130,000 men, all trying to take down this castle in which the rebels had made their headquarters. They also received help from the Dutch, who used some of their ships and their cannons to start shooting cannonballs after cannonballs into the castle. Eventually, the Tokugawa had to ask the Dutch to stop because it was becoming embarrassing when the rebels started essentially making fun of the Tokugawa for 
using foreigners. Uh, they sent a message that said, are there no more brave soldiers in the country to fight us? Aren't you ashamed to need the help of foreigners against the few of us standing against you? These work exactly as the rebels had hoped because the Tokugawa regime was embarrassed by this and asked their Dutch allies to step aside. And yet these the Tokugawa did not really have a strategy for victory anytime soon because months ended up going by because um, the rebels were just that tough and that skilled. You know, eventually the commander in charge of the operations for the Tokugawa was uh, God news that he was about to be replaced because he wasn't producing a result. So he led a near suicide charge trying to take the castle in one shot and was killed. So, you know, things are not going so well. You have your leading general killed by the rebels. You have one wave of attack after another not leading to their defeat. They even, at one point, in, uh, they even, the rebels led a raid that killed some 2,000 warriors on the Tokugawa side. Despite all this, though, they were slowly running out of food, ammunition, pretty much anything they needed in order to survive. Eventually, though, by mid-April, the fortress fell and things got really ugly. Now, the Tokugawa had paid a heavy price because they lost over 10,000 men trying to bring down this castle. And yet the people inside the castle lost considerably more because pretty much anyone who hadn't died in battle already was executed. And we're talking about tens of thousands of people. You know, there were almost 40,000 when they started. Clearly some had died in battle, but, you know, still a lot survived and they were the overwhelming majority of them had their head chopped off when it was done and over with which the scale of it all is insane because, you know, you picture one person getting decapitated is a spectacle that's probably stay in your head forever if you ever witness it. If you're talking about 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 people getting beheaded at the end of a campaign and not just enemy soldiers, women, kids, uh, I would imagine that the whole thing left some psychological scars in anybody who survived this. They weren't the only people getting their head chopped off either. Remember the Matsukura family, the ones who were the lords in this area whose uh, brutal crackdown had caused the rebellion? The Tokugawa blamed them for this, not wrongly, I must add. You know, They were correct that it was their their mistakes in their style of ruling that had led to the rebellion. And the Tokugawa felt like, you guys screwed up, you know. If uh, we, I, we lost 10,000 people because you couldn't rule your own domain. So they started putting pressure on the lord of the Matsukura family to commit an honorable ritual suicide. And the guy was resisting it a bit, which consider shameful you know if the shogun is asking you to kill yourself you kill yourself that was the culture of the times 
but on top of it, after the discovery of a peasant who had been murdered within his residence, the Tokugawa decided, enough waiting for you to find the courage and the honor to commit ritual suicide, so they dragged him off and chopped his head off. Just to make sure that they were equal opportunity beheaders, right? Rebels get beheaded and the people who caused the rebellion through their brutal rules also get beheaded. The loss of population in the area was such that the Tokugawa had to start importing people from other parts of Japan to keep the fields growing and everything else, because so many had died in this. And from this point forward, the Tokugawa would take no chances, so they made sure that all the new people register with local Buddhist temples or Shinto temples, and priests were required to confirm that these people were practicing and they were not Catholic, since Catholicism had clearly been a hotbed for rebellion in Japan at this time. In general, the Tokugawa figured they would start cracking down much harder against Christianity than they had done until this point, since Christians had been responsible for the biggest rebellion against the government since the end of the civil wars. So the Tokugawa started campaigns of forced conversions and extermination of those who, who didn't give up Christianity. Something else that's crucial to the history of Japan tied to this event is that Portuguese traders were suspected of having uh, lent a hand to the rebels, so they were expelled from Japan. But even bigger than just expelling Portuguese traders, Japan itself as a whole closed down to Western trade, except for some trade with the Dutch, and even that fairly limited trade. So this is a pattern that started here in the 1600s and would continue on until the 1850s, when the Americans showed up and forcibly opened up Japan. As far as Musashi's participation, we don't know much about what, what he did or didn't do, he was by now 54 years old, or somewhere around there, depending on what you believe to be the exact uh, date of birth. And this was his sixth and final battle. He would no longer participate in battles after this time. We do know that he was wounded in this battle, that he was close enough to the action, close enough to the castle wall at some point, when stones thrown by the defenders uh, hit him in the legs, wounding him, but that's pretty much all we know about it. During the course of the siege, Musashi had met a samurai named Nagaoka Sado, who was one of the main vassals of the Ozokawa family. Nagaoka was aware of Musashi's circumstances. He was aware that he was residing, I don't know, with the Ogasawara family. But he knew that it was uh, his son Yori who was uh, direct, uh, in the direct employment uh, of the Ogazawara, whereas Musashi himself was purely residing with them as a guest. He also knew that Musashi was never planning on becoming uh, a direct employee of the Ogazawara, so he started putting two and two together and figured it would be a great idea to convince him to move in uh, the Ozokawa domain, that this would greatly please uh, his own lord. So he started 
broaching the idea to his uh, lord Ozokawa. And Ozokawa was interested. He very much was interested in Musashi's fame as a swordman. He was very interested in Musashi as a person in a lot of ways. But he also felt that, you know, the last thing he wanted was to offend the Ogasawara family. So that things would have to be done very delicately to make sure that nobody would be offended. In the months to come, Hosokawa invited uh, Musashi to fight some friendly duels with some of his warriors, and Musashi beat them all. He then uh, invited one of the Yagyu family main disciples. Again, the Yagyu family were the instructors of the Shogun. And again, Musashi played pure defense, but clearly won the encounter. And so Ozokawa started hinting to Musashi that he would have loved for him to come to teach his men, to teach his sword style, which Musashi at this time was calling the Nita Nichiryu, to teach it throughout the domain. And so in 1640 he made his intention official through one of his guys, sending a letter to Musashi, inviting him to come live in, uh, among the Ozokawa which was a big honor, very big honor. You know, you had now one of these principal families in Japan promising to take care of you, to support your sword style and make you essentially the leading instructor in their domains. But initially Musashi sent back a reply in a letter. There was, there was just testing the water. Uh, here are some of the quotes from it. It says, Concerning your inquiry about my situation, I bring these things to your attention with this note. Until now, I've never once held an official position in any household. I'm already getting old and my health has been declining. For this reason, I have no ambitions of any kind. If I were to stay with you, you would be enough if I were given a suit of armor and a single horse in case I ever went to battle for you. I have no wife or child, and I'm an old man, so I entertain no thoughts about house or household goods. From a young age I've gone into battle some six times in Dole, four times at the forefront of the troops. This is widely known, and of course there's proof of it although it is not with a view to advance myself that I mention this. I could be of help in matters concerning the use of weapons and the battlefield, and in that event, on how to subdue a province. I've dedicated myself to these pursuits from my early youth, disciplined myself over many years, so that, if required, I could be of use. But still, even now, Musashi did not want to be tied to a lord. He, he could be hired as an independent advisor, but he would not become anybody's man, per se. And yet he did accept. He ended up going, provided that he was clear that he was there essentially as a guest. That was not the only thing that was clear. It was, it was also clear that he was pretty sick by now that his health was indeed declining. And there are all sorts of theories too regarding what was going on with him, what exactly was wrong. But again, it was a slow thing. It wasn't something that he fell ill and died the next day, something where his health started taking a dip and he would continue to do so for quite a while. So from this point forward, 
Musashi lived among the Ozokawa. He opened up a dojo, teaching, taking on disciples and teaching students. And he also developed a fairly strong relationship with uh, Lord Ozokawa Tadatoshi. He, he wasn't just about swordmanship, which of course they were both very fond of. But the Azokawa Lord seemed interested in other parts of Musashi's personality, because in addition to becoming uber-famous as a sword fighter, he was also gaining a fame in other fields, rather different fields, specifically as an artist, which may strike us as odd. You know, this guy's uh, essentially a trained killer and he's an artist. As it turns out, that's exactly what's going on. And the Ozokawa family, for generations, they have been very heavy into promoting traditional arts. They were, they were very insistent on the importance for a samurai family, not just to be effective warriors or administrators, but also to be patrons of the art. Big thank you to today's sponsor, St. John's College. St. John's College is the nation's great books college, where students explore 3,000 years of human thought. Together, students discuss, analyze, and grapple with the most difficult questions about our lives and the world. St. John's College offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options and their campuses in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. The Graduate Institute is a home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. From Aristotle to Aquinas, Wordsworth to Wolf, Herodotus to Hegel, students pursuing the Master of Arts in Liberal Arts explore some of history's most influential writers and thinkers. The interdisciplinary degree includes five segments, literature, mathematics and natural sciences, philosophy and theology, politics and society, and history. On the Santa Fe campus, students may also pursue a Master of Arts in Eastern Classics, examining the great books of India, China, and Japan in an Asian Classics program that delves both deep and wide into the richness of these traditions. Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life, learn more about the undergraduate and graduate programs, including online option at sjc.edu forward slash podcast. Again, that's sjc.edu forward slash podcast. Now, this theme of uh, this fascination for art among people who are professional warriors seemed like an interesting one. Because on the surface, they seem to be unrelated fields completely. And in many ways, they probably are. But the question here is, uh, what makes this an interesting question is the fact that this view is at the core of Zen practice. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. There's a core idea in Zen that emphasizes the, the notion that any art form can become a path for self-development, for, if you want to get technical in Zen, for achieving enlightenment even. How does that work? Basically, they believe that every art form, and by art, of course, I'm using the word loosely. I'm not just talking about painting, or that, that's definitely one of the art forms, but even something like the martial arts were considered art. Even, uh, you know, you, many, many, many different fields 
they were seen as uh, specific fields for what they are. You know, you learn martial arts, you learn how to fight, you learn uh, to paint, you become a good painter. You, But at the same time, the belief was that by going deep into understanding the principles on which any art is based, you would understand the same principles that are the roots of, uh, of life itself. This is very much a Zen view. It's in line with Taoist view, which makes sense since Zen is really just a Japanese version of Buddhism and Taoism mixed together. For the matter, even in China, when it existed under the name of Chan Buddhism, that's what it was. It was essentially a mixing of Taoism and Buddhism. But this notion that studying any art can help you develop as a human being it's uh, th- that would explain probably why something seemingly contradictory such as people who are professional warriors and people who are sensitive artists in many cases would be the same human beings a lot of it is tied to zen buddhism and of course in each of these field the technique is different the medium is different uh, all of that is different for each field but the principles required to become good at anything then could be the same and those could be applied to life as a whole rather than just learning how to be a great fill in the blanks whatever the specific art you practice is you can learn that and in the process learn those same principles you can apply to all other aspects of your life uh, it's actually seen in zen as a great missed opportunity if you just become great at that one field but then you walk out of the martial arts school or you step away from canvas and paintbrush and you haven't really learned those. You learn those principles only in that field, but you don't know how to apply them outside of it. So in the Zen view, anything from swordmanship to archery, calligraphy, painting, theater, these were all paths that could lead to enlightenment. And uh, this particular worldview resonated tremendously with Musashi. Looking at the latter part of his life, it's quite obvious that this was uh, one of the things he felt the strongest about. There's even a quote from uh, the Book of Five Rings where, depending on the translation, but one of the possible versions is quoted as, if you know the way broadly, you will see it in everything. Because basically, you know, what does it mean to know the way broadly? If you don't just uh, learn the specifics, nitpicky thing of a particular path you have chosen, in this case, the way that he speaks about, he's talking about swordmanship. But what he's saying is, if you don't just focus on swordmanship alone and the technique, but if you look at it broadly, meaning if you look at the principles that are required to become good at it, if you look at the principles on which the art is based, then he adds, you will see it in everything, meaning that those principles can be found uh, are really at the, in the DNA of life, in a way. And once you learn that, you can master not just a specific field, but you can start mastering life itself, in a way. So a key concept for Musashi was not to become a specialist in any one thing, even though obviously he achieved insanely high level of skill in certain fields, such as swordmanship. But he didn't believe that you should be a specialist in anything, but rather you should try to master as many things as possible. 
There are a couple of rules that Musashi recommended in the Book of Five Rings for his students that may seem to have nothing to do with swordsmanship specifically. It says, touch upon all the arts and develop a discerning eye in all matters. So again, it's that idea that you should be able to master more than one language, and in the process of this, you're going to understand something about life as a whole. So this view was, uh, was really something that changes the perception of Musashi a little bit, because this looks more like a spiritual path. These at the core, especially in Japan, this would have been recognized as being at the core of Zen Buddhism. And incidentally, Zen Buddhism is something that Musashi was studying quite a bit during this uh, second half of his life. He spent lots of time meditating. He started studying Zen, not just Zen, also other parts of Buddhism. But in particular, there was an abbot for the Ozokawa family temple that Musashi would spend a lot of time with. They would uh, study Buddhist scriptures together, they would meditate together. However, despite his passion for Buddhism and Zen, Musashi was a kind of too much of an individualist to become a member into any one thing. He did not stick to any one particular branch of Buddhism, or even within Zen Buddhism. He did not really subscribe to any one school. In very much in Bruce Lee fashion, Musashi was a big fan of borrowing the best that he could find from different sources. So he wasn't bound, whether in his swordmanship or in his spirituality. He wasn't bound to a particular school of thought. He would just borrow from multiple sources if they made sense and then incorporate them into his own path. So this clearly is one of the aspects that make the Musashi story more attractive to large numbers of people. His path at this point begins to look a little less just like one of made of violence and bloodshed and more as one of self-discovery. Granted, a lot of that self-discovery took place through a good chunk of violence and bloodshed, but you know, you need to take into account the time in which he lived, the culture in which he was born, you know, he was born into a samurai family toward the tail end of 150 years of civil war, some aspects of his uh, career you can definitely attribute to the time and place. So Musashi became uh, rather well known as a painter, as a calligrapher, as a sculptor. He designed gardens, he wrote poetry, and there are probably more that I'm forgetting right now, because the list actually went longer than this. So he really was becoming not just a jack-of-all-trades, but actually skilled in many, many, many different trades. While swordmanship is certainly the one he's most remembered by, he also became, um, I mean, even to this day, there are some of the works attributed to Musashi have been rediscovered and they are highly praised. Uh, both in Zen as well as uh, art circles, they study his work and believe that was, uh, that was the sign of a phenomenal artist. Now, keep in mind, like much of everything else about his life, 
there's debate regarding which specific works can safely be attributed to him and which ones not. So, you know, there's a lot that is unknown. However, generally speaking, out of the ones that are usually attributed to him, art critics and Zen practitioners alike seem to be rather enthusiastic about the results. Of course, there's the question of how did he learn all that? Because uh, at the beginning of the Book of Five Rings, Musashi wrote that he never had a teacher in the martial arts or in any other art, which seems to be I mean, on the surface, it's completely impossible in the sense that, of course, you have a teacher. It's like, how do you learn anything without somebody teaching you? And it's almost a given that he picked up things along the way. I think what it means here is that he, the final product in his art, in any of his arts, whether you're talking with a paintbrush or with a sword or car or as a sculpture or whatever that may be, was more than simply him learning from a teacher and reproducing that path. I think, again, he's hinting at a Bruce Lee type of approach where he picked up things from many sources, but was never fully the disciple of one school and stuck with it for any length of time that... I mean, he probably learned from his father, he probably learned from members of his family, and we're talking about the martial arts at least. Anything else else after that, I think, and again, I keep using the word I think because Musashi is vague enough that he doesn't spell it out, so we are left wondering. But the vibe I get from this is that he almost certainly must have studied what other people were doing and may have gotten tips from one person or another, but that a lot of his art was the product of him sitting down and working at it and borrowing whatever insight he had from other people, elaborating it, changing it around until it clicked with him. So Musashi spent his 50s teaching his swordsmanship, painting, meditating, being engaged in tea ceremonies, in poetry circles, so definitely a more mellow life compared to how he started out. His personality was still a little edgy at times. You know, on one hand, some students remember him as very generous, that he would give them money if they were about to travel away. However, he could get really in your face if he didn't like something about your attitude. So there was this mixture of kindness, but you know, the switch could be flipped real quick with him. In some cases, he could be brutally harsh in his criticisms of his students. When he was around 57 years old is when he had one of his uh, last recorded matches. This was a far cry from the fights to the death of his youth. This was against one of the weapon instructors for the Ozokawa clan, a certain Shioda Amanosuke, and uh, what happened was that Musashi was a little bit dismissive of this challenge, in the sense that he felt that there was no way that uh, Hamanosuke could beat him. So he said, if he can get even close to me, we'll consider it a win for him. Which, of course, was a bit insulting. You know, Hamanosuke was famous for uh, his work with the staff, um, like usually a six-foot-long piece of wood that he would use. So he had this tremendous reach advantage whereas Musashi only carried a short wooden sword. And yet, 
every time Hamanosuke went for it, uh, Musashi's short sword would always check the path of the staff and block pretty much all of his attacks. So as a result of this, you know, he Hamanosuke got frustrated, threw away his staff, tried to go grapple with Musashi, because Hamanosuke was also known as a great grappler, and yet he still couldn't apply his skills. He couldn't get quite close enough to Musashi to be able to pull it off. So eventually the tale goes that Hamanosuke just bowed to Musashi and asked to learn from him, to become his disciple. Musashi was absolutely fine with that, but he also believed that Hamanosuke was actually a skilled fighter, so he borrowed a lot of the takedowns and the, like the grappling techniques and the staff work that Hamanosuke was famous for and started and, and actually requested that these were taught to his own students. So there was a bit of mixing as a result of this duel. Again, friendly duel, but duel nonetheless. And as I mentioned, this happened late in his life, when Musashi was right about 57 years old. Now, some duels didn't take place because by now his fame had traveled far enough that people were careful about what they said in his presence. There's a tale, in fact, that once Musashi was attending uh, a performance where they were performing uh, no drama, there were a few other art performances, and attending were many people, including a good chunk of samurai, and a guy by the name of uh, Shimizu Hoki. At one point decided, who knows, maybe he had too much sake, hard to tell, but decided it was a good idea to go to Musashi a little bit. So he yelled out saying, hey, I heard that uh, when you fought uh, Ganryu many years ago, the tale is that Ganryu hit you first. Uh, what do you have to say to that? I mean, yeah, you eventually killed him, good for you, but that he was the one who was able to strike first. And, you know, everybody held their breath at that point because they were like, oh, damn, what's going to happen now? How is Musashi going to react? And Musashi got up, picked up a lantern because it was getting a little dark, went straight to this guy, and uh, said, please, you know, I've, uh, uh, because unlike most people of the time, um, Musashi didn't shave his forehead, so people couldn't just see it, if he had been hit or not in the front part, because it could have been covered by hair. So he said, uh, okay, here I am, please look, take a good look to see if I have a scar. You know, he used the real sword during the duel, so clearly if he touched me, you're going to see a scar. So look here. And the guy realized that he messed up. So he was like very quickly took a look. I was like, yep, there's no scar. Sorry about that. And Musashi was like, no, no, you said that I got hit first. So please take a careful look. And the guy again is by now sweating bullets because he realizes he's gone too far. And he checks and he's like, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, that story is clearly wrong. You, you were never hit in that duel. And, uh, and Musashi was like, okay, cool. He go went back to his chair, sat down, and finally everybody could breathe again because that was one of the things that had it happened a decade or two earlier, things may have gotten much more violent, much faster. But again, by now, Musashi's life had different priorities. He actually adopted 
a third sonnet this time. You know, one had died, we mentioned earlier, the second one was still alive. This third adopted son uh, also would end up spending a good, uh, good amount of time with Musashi himself, and Musashi was able to teach him some of his ways. But by now, not only his priorities were changing, but also his health was clearly declining. There are all sorts of theories about what may have been uh, affecting him. One of the common ones, he had some kind of thoracic cancer, but it's honestly they're just an educated guess because nobody's sure. In 1641, Lord Tadatoshi asked Musashi to write down the principles on which his art was based so that they could be preserved for the future. So Musashi wrote down this series of principles. They were... It's a very quick work. Uh, you read the principles, there's a quite a strong emphasis on another concept that Bruce Lee will be very fond of, which is the be like water concept. The whole notion of adaptability, basically. The whole notion that much like water can adapt to any container it falls in, to any surface the real skill in being a warrior and by extension the real skill in life is adaptability is being able to adapt to anything that happened to different circumstances to events because otherwise you're just being dogmatic otherwise you're praying that that one approach that worked at one time is going to uh, present itself again whereas Musashi is saying flexibility is the cardinal virtue of it all again uh, cornerstone of Zen Buddhism and Taoism. Tadatoshi was thrilled with uh, Musashi's gift. He really treasured this book. He didn't treasure it for long though, because uh, shortly thereafter he died. And he wasn't even 60 years old, and 18 of his closest servants followed him in death. So, this was a big, big blow to Musashi. It was a big blow to everybody in the Hosokawa community, but particularly for Musashi, he had been... Uh, Hosokawa Tadatoshi had become somebody who Musashi looked up to as a friend, who considered uh, somebody close to him, which is not a common thing, considering that the biography of Musashi doesn't seem to offer a ton of examples of people who managed to get close to him. Now, maybe it happened more often than the records report. But again, based on what we have, it seems uh, to be a rare thing. So, at this time, in 1641, Musashi had lost to one of his closest friends. And he demonstrated this by... Like, his grief was obvious. They say that he stayed in his room with the door locked for quite a while... After, after the death of his friend. He, he then dedicated himself with even more passion to meditation, to the spiritual path. And one thing that he decided to do is that when Tadatoshi's next in line, his 22-year-old son Mitsunao, was taking power, Musashi promised that he would expand what he had sketched into the principles that his father had asked him to write, he would expand that into a more complete book. And so he went up to a cave in the mountains, 
where there was a statue of Kannon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and he said that he would go there to pray for help, for creative inspiration, and then would then spend several months there writing. He finished the first draft by 1645, and it was a race against time, because he knew that his time was limited. He felt that uh, his, uh, his health kept getting progressively worse. This wasn't a super fast-moving illness, whatever that was. It actually took year, took several years to catch up to him. But by now, they said that for quite a while he had had uh, trouble swallowing. Now he was even having a hard time breathing. So by the time you get to that point, clearly things are not looking up. It's hard to imagine that Musashi could even conceive of what this booklet that he was writing in a cave, how much of an impact he would have on later generations. Not just about martial artists. I mean, today the Book of Five Rings is one of those classics that you find in pretty much any bookstore you walk in. It's famous worldwide, which is trippy because if you read the Book of Five Rings, it's not an easy book to read. It's, uh, it's not written in a style that makes it perfectly crystal clear the meaning that Musashi has all the time. I mean, some concepts are fairly obvious, but again, it's not a lightweight read by any stretch of the imagination. He did speak of his uh, duels. Again, not much. This is not an autobiography. He's mainly talking philosophy and principles. And as I hinted earlier when talking about his lack of uh, teachers, he emphasized avoiding Bound, binding yourself to any one methodology in order to be able to be free to pick from multiple. Again, if you, well, I keep saying it, but if you recognize Bruce Lee ideas in this, there's a reason, because Bruce Lee clearly also read some Musashi and was inspired by him. Among the more obvious themes that show up in the Book of Five Rings, one of them is the... Uh, extremely strong stress on discipline. The emphasis on discipline and practice and working at some of these problems and finding the solutions through experience rather than theory stressed time and time again. Over and over there are lines that say uh, you should investigate this truly or you should make effort by practicing, you should pick up the sword and try it. Um, it's almost at the end of every section of the work. He's sort of giving you the ideas and then saying, okay, now go figure it out for yourself. See what actually makes sense to you of what I just wrote in practice. And uh, there's no substitute for what you discover on your own, through your own practice. This is not a dogma that you just have to learn and recite. This is something that, you know, I can point the way to you, but ultimately you have to discover the way for yourself. And to him, this is uh, is basically saying that understanding these principles, this is not something that happens in a vision, in one moment where sudden enlightenment takes place. This is just hard work for a long time and uh, peeling these layers of an onion where your understanding gets more and more refined through discipline. Like it's clear by the importance he attributes to this that Musashi believed that discipline was more important than technique, 
was more important than uh, pretty much anything else. Of course, this is true to a point, because the reality is that you can be incredibly disciplined, but if you don't have the talent, or if you are disciplined in the wrong way, if you are if you are applying poor techniques with tremendous discipline and nobody correcting you, you being disciplined can only go so far. Um, I remember... I remember on these ideas how like you know people can do the same thing and obtain the same results. There was a famous commercial, I think it was in in the 1990s or early 2000s, where Michael Jordan would talk about all the mistakes he had done in his life. And at one point he had this line saying, "I miss, uh, I think it was 9,000 shots or something like that," and that's how I became Michael Jordan. And I remember my father once had a chance to interview Michael Jordan. And when he was there, he he asked it as a serious thing. But of course, Jordan laughed because he thought it was a funny joke. But my dad was like, well, I practiced a lot. I missed one 9,000 shots, but I never became Michael Jordan. And of course, there's an element of truth to that, right? Because the point is, just because you work hard, that is a necessary step toward becoming great but it's by no means in itself is going to guarantee that you become great. Again, a lot of effort applied poorly doesn't lead to any kind of good result. But either way, one of the key ideas here is the emphasis on uh, direct experience rather than purely theoretical knowledge. Uh, This is something that being a practically minded guy, being a martial artist where doesn't matter how well you talk or how flowery the principles that you espouse, it matters how you perform. That's really life or death, depending on how you perform for somebody like Musashi. His emphasis won on action more than pure theory alone. Uh, among the other things that show up, um, speaking of emphasis, is the emphasis on... Uh, I hate to call them tricks, but kind of, you know, long before Musashi came around, if you look at another author of one of the classics of martial arts strategy, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, there is a line there that talk about warfare being the way of deception. And similarly, one of the most famous swordsmen in Japan of this time, Yagyu Munenori, in his own work, that was called the life-giving sword, he said duplicity is the foundation of the martial arts. And Musashi understood this. I mean, if you think about many of his duels, they were designed to stack the deck in his favor. Some of it through what seem to be tricks. Others are, I mean, I guess they are tricks, but they are not tricks anymore than fainting in basketball is a trick. You know, you look one way and pass the ball the other way. Musashi argues there's plenty of that in the martial arts. That's one of the big differences between somebody who's just young and athletic and can move quickly and somebody with strategy can keep them at a high level of skill long after their athleticism has began declining. So he says, um, occasionally, play mind games. For example, in some cases, Musashi would try to appear weak to make his opponents lower the guard, feeling that they were going to have an easy day, and then catch them by surprise when he would attack with uh, full-on intensity. 
or in other cases he would appear insanely strong to intimidate them, to make them feel that they had no chance of winning and so defeating them before it even began. Now, clearly the skill was in being able to read the opponent and figure out what kind of uh, mind game would work on them. Were they somewhere likely to be intimidated or were they actually the kind of people who rise up to, if they feel challenged, they actually put forth their best? Uh, are they the kind of people who relax in the face of weakness because they pat themselves on the back and feel that it's going to be an easy day or not so much? And so his whole thing was about both mind-wise as well as technique-wise. You know, you fake one attack in order to hit a different spot. You fake an attack to the head to hit the wrist. You fake, you know, faking being one of the core components of his strategy. On a philosophical level, there's also in Musashi's writing a clear conflict with, well, let me rephrase it's a conflict that obviously he wasn't aware of since he's going to be in conflict with a book written long after his own death. But that would become one of the classics of uh, what people think when they are thinking samurai philosophy. And what I'm referring to is the Hagakure by uh, Yamamoto Tsunetomo, who lived after Musashi, lived at a time when wars were done. He had... You know, Yamamoto had no personal experience in combat. He hadn't been in war. He hadn't been... Uh, so a lot, of his, uh, a lot of his ideas are clearly influenced by the context that he lived in. And one of them is this strong emphasis on being a samurai is a way of death. Being a samurai is developing the courage to drop your life for your lord at upon request, immediately, no hesitation. You should be ready to die for fighting for your lord anytime. What's wrong with that? Well, Musashi doesn't have a problem. Well, I guess he would have a problem with the whole uh, loyalty to the lord, considering that he never really entered in the service of any lord. But the other aspect is that the Hagakure in the book, they almost discount outcome. They believe, like in the Hagakura, there was a strong criticism of uh, those samurais who waited for the best opportunity to achieve their goal. Uh, because the author of the Hagakura believed that you should just go out and fight with horrendously bad odds. It didn't matter. So there was no strategy in a way. It was just about pure dumb bravery. Musashi is not a fan of that idea. He... To him, the martial learning how to die, great, everybody dies eventually, but still. Uh, so warriors needed to make their peace with it. Uh, in Zen, you needed to make your peace with it. So he understood that part. He didn't have a problem with it. The part he did have a problem with was this lack of regard for outcome. Musashi had a very pragmatic approach to the martial arts. To him, being a warrior wasn't just about being unafraid of death. He said, a bunch of other people can be unafraid of death. You don't have to be a warrior for that. Being a warrior was also about winning, was also about outcome and results. Which in some way kind of reminds me of one of the phrases attributed to General Patton, who famously said something along the lines of, 
no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won the war by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Emphasis being all on winning, not about just uh, toughness in the face of that, not bravery, but actually using those principles that the author of the Agakura would have considered uh, unsamurai-like, because to him it's like, no, you, you face the enemy head-on and that's it. Musashi was all about tricks. He's like, I don't care to face the enemy head-on, I'll face the enemy in whichever way gives me a victory. That's how I'll do it. So very different approaches. Both The Book of Five Rings and Hagakure are considered classics of uh, martial arts literature, but they could not be more different in regards to what being a samurai was all about. There are many, many other themes in The Book of Five Rings that, of course, I'm not going to try covering them all because it's a whole other podcast in itself, but... Just to mention a couple of things, he, has, uh, he insists quite a bit on the importance of something that most translators struggle with. Some people translate it as cadence, some people as rhythm, some people as timing. Uh, you can probably figure out, based on those three possible translations, what we're talking about. I personally like timing, but again, I don't know if, how close that is to the original Japanese. He's saying that in a sense, even the best strategy is not going to work if applied at the wrong time. So that so much of fighting, and for that matter, so much of life itself, is about recognizing the proper timing. So that if you act in a certain way when the time is right, the success will be immediate. If you act in a certain way when the time is not right, could be the same action, could be a great idea in another context, but it's not going to work in that one. And he believes that that's one of the key principles of sword fighting. And in some way, he also believes that you can influence the timing. You can, uh, uh, like one of, it's kind of in between those uh, fainting that I was talking about earlier and the deception part of fighting with this emphasis on timing. He says that you can create a certain energy that's going to lull the opponent into following your rhythm and then you're gonna abruptly change the rhythm when you least expect it so for example if you slow down the fight uh, and he start moving and thinking at a certain speed and you suddenly switch that could have a tremendous uh, powerful effect because it's so unexpected and so he said that timing is not just recognizing when something is appropriate or not but it's also something that you can influence in itself and and of course among other principles applied to fighting he emphasized the notion of not doing the same thing too many times in a row he said you can do something once no problem twice okay by the third time you have built a pattern and a skilled opponent is going to recognize that pattern and anticipate it and exploit it so don't get too used to doing the same thing over and over. Which is, you know, you can look at it literally from a fighting standpoint, which is good advice. You can also look at it more metaphorically as it applies to life. And it's essentially saying don't fall back on the same, the same answer that worked for you once doesn't necessarily 
work for the rest of your life. So in other words, don't be dogmatic. Don't get stuck. Don't fall in love with something that you found working for you at one point in your life. Be willing and ready to try other ways as well. About a week before Musashi died, he gathered some of his disciples to give away most of his property. Not that he had a whole lot, but still, things that meant a lot to his disciples, from swords to other weapons to some of his writings, his calligraphy. And he also wrote a very short, even calling it a booklet is a stretch, because it's really just a series of 21 ideas. Each one, they are more or less one-liners, all of them. And uh, it's sometimes translated as the path of walking alone or the way of walking alone. And I mean, I might as well read it to you, like at least some of the key principles, like some of them are classic Buddhism, right? He has things like accept everything just the way it is. Uh, do not seek pleasure for its own sake. Uh, emphasizes in another one, emphasizes detachment from desires your whole life long, which is again, cornerstone of um, certain aspects of Buddhism. This theme of non-attachment show up also about not being saddened by separation or when things come to an end. Um, he then goes on, well, this is where it gets a little weird. He says, well, or not weird, again, it's his philosophy, but what for some people is a bit of a turn off. When he says something like, don't rely on feelings of love. That's a heavy one. Right? Because for most people who think that love is a central force in their lives and it's what gives their lives meaning, having these guys tell you do not rely on feelings of love, don't, uh, not even don't rely, don't be guided by feelings of love, that's uh, kind of a harsh worldview. He advocates not having preferences, being indifferent to the places you live or not care for the quality of the food you eat. Um, and by quality, it doesn't mean nutritional, because of course you need it to have a decent life. It talks about taste. Um, he also goes into the notion of, uh, I'm trying to find a way to express it, but basically being unconventional. He says, do not follow customary beliefs. Do not follow, in essence he's saying, do not follow dogmas. Or, religiously speaking, he said, uh, respect the Buddhas and the gods, but do not count on their help. Which is an interesting concept in itself. I mean, kind of fits for both the part about love and the part about Buddhas and the gods. For a booklet called uh, The Way of Walking Alone, The Way of Walking Alone is in many ways a perfect title for Musashi's own life, for what his path had entailed uh, all this time that we've been looking at um, throughout, from the time he was born to this time here, as he's giving away his possessions shortly before dying. He eventually died on June 13th, 1645, and much had been told about his life while he was alive. His name and uh, legends had been growing around his uh, duels and his fame at the time he was alive. But this increased dramatically in the years to come, less than a century after he died. Uh, his, uh, his story, and again, who knows how much of it is real history and how much is legend, but at least part of the legends told about him 
were uh, put on stage into a drama. Uh, that was called Revenge at Gunnery Island. And that became a huge hit, making Musashi's name extremely popular in the first half of the 1700s. And from that time forward has been an ongoing thing, from theater plays to novels to movies to books, you name it. But I talk about some of his impact already. Right now, as we wrap things up, I want to talk about something else. I told you at the beginning of the series that I was going to keep my thoughts largely to myself regarding this story, but that I would save them for the end. Well, here we are, almost at the end, so it's time to say some of the stuff that has been on my mind as I was researching this whole tale. Now, many people I know idolize Musashi. And there was a point during the research when I felt that maybe I should just drop the topic because I felt almost sure that I would let down all the people who expected me to have a take that uh, catered to this extremely positive view of him. And I get it. I mean, some of this is hard not to admire him. You know, his discipline, his single-minded focus... His, uh, his effectiveness, his ability to be as good as he was in so many different fields, those are all, you know, you can't argue with that. Those are very impressive qualities. In some ways, though, the main problem I'm having here is that in some ways this story reminds me of a series that I did in the past. I haven't released it uh, outside of paywalls yet, but it will happen. I did a series on uh, Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius, much like Musashi, is worshipped by tons of people to this day. Lots and lots of people consider him a philosophical role model. And, you know, I walked in knowing some about Marcus Aurelius, but the more I dug in, the more I started feeling at odds with this romanticized view of him. Studying Musashi's stories uh, eliciting similar feelings in me. And so working on this has been a tricky thing because I grew up, you know, I grew up in the martial arts with this idea of uh, worship in some of these guys. And Musashi himself, you know, whatever I had heard about him sounded fantastic. I read uh, the Book of Five Rings way back in the day. Didn't get as much of it as I expected, but, you know, still I felt there was something powerful there. But the more I started researching his life, the more I started... I mean, there was a point during the research where I felt like this guy is just a loveless, violent sociopath, you know, this is where it's at. Now, uh, I got how he would end up being that way, you know, he was from such a harsh, brutal... You know, his father was absolutely rough on him from every telling of the tale. The cultural context was uh, built on emotional repression. But still, I at some point I no longer was able to relate to people finding something appealing in him. Now, this is didn't fully last. Okay, I think I came. Uh, the journey through this research was coming in with higher expectations, feeling that those expectations were crushed to the point of what I was looking at was the exact opposite of what I thought I would find. 
and then coming back to a place that's neither of these extremes. But before I get to this change, I guess I should mention that in regards to Marcus Aurelius, I noticed some similarities between Marcus Aurelius and Musashi, and I noticed that my reaction to them was the same. You know, both of those guys took uh, Stoic principles, in Marcus Aurelius explicitly Stoic, in Musashi's case he didn't know them by that word, but he applied them just the same. They took this principle to an extreme. So I sense a pattern here. You know, both of them seem to be very lonely people with a stunted ability to love and enjoy life. And both of them came to a cultural from a cultural context that was somewhat similar. I mean, Roman culture was very emotionally repressed and extremely violent, built on warfare. Samurai culture of this time was very like both of when I say emotionally repressed, I mean cultures that made it a virtue. Uh, of emotional repression, of uh, under the guise of keeping one's emotions in check, they were really squashing a lot of emotions. And again, both cultures are very tied to warfare, fighting, and violence. So my feelings is that both Musashis and Marcus Aurelius were taking some great ideas, pushing them to the absolute extreme where they stop being medicine for the soul and they turned into poison. Of course, this is my personal judgment call, and I, you know, other people read the same thing and they find the treasures in there. So I'm not expecting that my personal take is the truth. But I also modified my personal take a little. That was initially. Then I started having lots of discussions with people, both online, I got on phone calls with friends. Uh, I had one with my friend uh, Nick Gregoriades, who's a top-notch, jiu-jitsu player, great teacher too, and we talked about Musashi for a bit, and I came away with I think is what's a more nuanced view. I feel that in some way I didn't give enough weight to the good sides of Musashi's life. I took too much for granted. You know, in some way the fact that he transformed himself throughout his life, he started being this tough guy who got into death fights with, we should remember, he didn't just kill random people on the street, he was fighting against other people who were equally committed to fighting to the death for the sake of building their famous swordman. So, you know, we may not approve of the action, but again, it's not like he was going after some random passerby or something. But beyond that, it seems that throughout his life he started leaving that lifestyle behind him and started focusing more and more on uh, spirituality, on uh, his ability to express himself through his art, and in other ways. So we do see a journey in the man. There's a, there's a character arc there that may start extremely violent, but definitely does not end that way. So there's something to be said for that. There's also his whole life journey. You can see it as a journey toward, uh, like, it was, it, this is the story of a guy who was on a path toward self-perfection. Independent to the point where it makes the word independent sound uh, almost trivial, you know. No unknowledge teachers, very much, almost the textbook definition of self-made man, of somebody who just created his own path every step of the way. You know, so much of Japanese society at this time and in the years to come afterwards during the Tokugawa period 
there was an extremely rigid social order and everybody fit into it and had very little freedom to live their lives as they wanted to. Musashi broke away from it all and decided to live life on his own terms. So this is obviously appealing to many, many people everywhere in the world, but particularly people in the Western world because of the individualistic quality. Oddly enough, actually, even to many people in Japan who see it as there's a bit of a longing for this more individualistic approach in a society that traditionally hasn't smiled upon it that much. So there's definitely that good side to him, his independence, his freedom. That also comes with a bad side. He's alienated from other people, or at least seemingly so. He seemed to be incapable of deeper relationships. And again, we are going purely on the sources we have. Maybe he was, and the sources don't tell us, okay? So I'm just going by the sources. But based on what I see, I see a guy plagued by devastating solitude. You know, society warped him, not always in, actually forgot, not always, flat out in ways that were disturbing for the growth of a healthy personality. He wanted to be probably accepted by his father. There was a desire for, you know, the things we all want when you're kids. And instead, he got none of that. So what he built himself to be instead is becoming this invincible warrior. And yet, despite all his victories, both in the martial arts as well as his accomplishments in other ways, through other art forms, he lost at every step of the way. You know, many of the stories about him served as the ultimate macho parable of empowerment. I personally see it as a tragedy. You know, he was on one end too weird to fit into normal life, and I definitely don't blame him for that. But he also seemed to carry almost too much PTSD to be a full human being, to be able to fully love. Again, not unique to him. When we say that emotional repression was considered as a virtue, as a cultural value, well, I mean, that's a rough start to begin with if you're grown in that context. It seems to be even more true in his life than for the average person in Japan at the time when he lived. And the question that remains, because all the power in the world, does it mean something if you can create life? You know, so much of history is dominated by people desperately seeking affirmation, desperately trying to establish their world, their sense of self. It's packed with power-hungry people who die loveless, sitting on a pile of money or on top of a throne, ruling empires, trying to get a sense of fulfillment through accomplishments and it's never enough. You know, the promised happiness that they told themselves or they came to believe at some point early in their life that it would be theirs once they achieve this goal never arrives. It's always like the carrot on the stick, right? It's always one step away from you. If, if I only achieve this, then it will get there. So they double down because that's all they know. And I don't mean to sound like the Beatles or something with all you need is love, but I do feel to see a loveless life as a successful one. Keep in mind again that I'm saying all this based on very limited evidence, so I could be completely wrong in my read of Musashi's life. Uh, it's just based on what I have available to me. 
So I do acknowledge there are some great aspects in his tale, but I still find this story partially sad and partially troublesome. Now, way back in the day, the very first book I ever wrote was called On the Warrior's Path. So from the title itself, you can see that these are themes I've been thinking about for just a little bit. And there's a chapter that used to be the end of the Italian edition that I published way back when, I think I was in my early 20s. Chapter 8 was the last chapter of the first edition, in Italian at least. And that chapter, in a way, after going through addressing the philosophy of martial arts in a bunch of ways, addressing the various aspects of what it means to be a warrior, was touching on the big question, the what's the point of all of this? You know, all the other chapters are about philosophy of martial arts, but eventually you get to the question, what are we doing it for? You know, whether you mean it literally becoming a warrior, as people like Musashi were, whether you mean it more metaphorically, as it applies to most people in this day and age, developing toughness, discipline, and effectiveness. Those are obviously good things, but they cannot be ends in themselves. You know, Hitler was uh, disciplined and effective. So what? You know, that doesn't mean you become a decent human being. That just means you become a disciplined and effective, awful human being if you haven't developed yourself in other ways. So the whole point of that chapter and the whole point of where I go with that is, to me, personally, I'm interested primarily in the kind of kindness that gets to be developed along with toughness and strength. Because to me, otherwise, a strength without kindness is the stuff that bullies are made of. And of course, it's also true that kindness without strength is well-intentioned, but bound to crumble in the face of the harshness of reality. So to me, there's no argument about Musashi's toughness, or his strength, or his discipline. He was obviously a master at all of that. But what for? What's the point of achieving all these qualities if they are not in the service of something greater. You know, there's a sentence by Friedrich Nietzsche that I love a lot that said, I fought for a long time and was a warrior so that one day my hands would become free to bless. And it's that sense of the whole point of becoming this tough, strong, resilient human being who's not easily crushed by everything that life throws at you is so that you can do something beautiful with it, is so that you can spread uh, kindness to other human beings, is so that you can uh, protect people who need to be protected, is so that you can share love and instill love in the ones close to you. Otherwise, what are we doing it for, you know? Like, it was interesting that when, uh, while I was studying the Musashi story, I ended up having a conversation with uh, Justin Ren. Justin has, uh, was an MMA fighter. I think he's going back to fighting again. But one of the things that I love about this story is that you look at Justin, who was a guy who grew up being horrendously bullied, willing himself into becoming a phenomenon wrestling, then turning that into a career into an MMA fighter, 
and then sort of leaving it all behind uh, during his prime, went off to Africa, did incredible things for lots of people. And I use it the word lightly. I mean, life-changing things that saved the lives of a ton of people, dramatically altered the quality of their lives. To me, that's a hero. You know, to me, that's somebody who developed those warrior qualities to then use that power to help other people, to make life easier for other people, to uh, nourish other people. That, to me, is the, the character arc that I crave, that I look for, that anytime I hear or see somebody who's renowned for being tough and strong and this model of discipline and all of that, I'm always like, that's great as a almost as a prerequisite but the question then is what are you using it for what's the next because that interests me uh, the other part is great as a, as a stepping stone but the part where it gets really interesting is the impact that you have on other people so for example even if we want to stick to the japanese context you know musashi in many ways, was uh, he has the heroic quality for being absolutely uncompromising about his freedom and independence, and I really respect that. At the same time, if you go back in some older History on Fire episode, the series I did about E.Q. Sojourn, that was, uh, I want to say, 45, 46, somewhere around there, in the 40s that episode was. And E.Q. grew up in a similar social context. He grew up in an environment where people were expected to be somewhat grim, stoic, emotionally repressed, with many people turning stoic virtues into a vice by taking them so far. But then you look at the life of a guy like Kikyo, and you know, it doesn't get any more fun-loving, free from social trappings, but full of love for people in his life and for life itself. Here is a guy who is capable of powerful emotions. He's not ruled by them, because that's the thing that people... That's why some stoic ideas are great, because it's very valuable not to be ruled by emotions. But at the same time, you want to be able to feel them. You want to be able to... You want those intense emotions to nourish your life otherwise what are we even doing here so i know some of you may have not asked for my opinion on all this but you're getting it anyway and this was it so again i find i'm still fascinated with the story of miyamoto musashi i think it's a great tale um in terms of personal role models i tend to look elsewhere but again, nobody ever said that role models, like that you need to find the inspiration only in people whose uh, story you like from beginning to end. Sometimes there's people that you can admire for one aspect of their journey. And then you take the best from what you learn from there and you mix it in your own personal journey that may lead to a very different place. But... And for me at least, all the power to EQ and all the power to Justin Rand.